Um, okay, well, hello and welcome to episode 18 of Laughing Into the Void. I'm your host, Tom, and co-hosting with me tonight, as always, is the lovely Rosalind Paris. You, you Hi! Can watch... <laughs> Actually, um, since you are the lovely Rosalind Paris... Oh, oh. there's our guest! Awesome! Yay! <gasps> Panic! Um, is what I was doing before. You were uh, panicking? I was panicking. I don't know why. Um, but you can watch our previous broadcasts on the District Comedy YouTube and Facebook channels or listen to them on most podcast platforms. Additionally, if you enjoy the stream, please consider making a donation of any size at district-comedy.live or like, share, and subscribe to our stuff. Here with us today, we have Vicki Plummer. Vicki Plummer has always been a late bloomer in life, from not getting her driver's license until she was 21 years old to not hitting her growth spurt until after graduating high school. So why would her stand-up comedy career be any different? She does have her BA in musical theater and did tour across the country with a few different companies, and she did pursue stand-up comedy in New York City starting in 2000 until 2007, hitting all the clubs, bars, restaurants, writing, doing mics, all of that. But she decided to take a short break, which ended up being a 12-year hiatus we're gonna dig more into that later uh and uh coming back to the comedy world in january 2019 meant starting all over from scratch how fun um but vicky is a fighter and has battled her way back from cancer and other life-threatening medical issues and uses humor to poke fun at all the weird and crazy things that have shaped her life so this was one more challenge that she accepted so that all being said, thank you so much for being with us today. Switch to gallery view. Here we go. Let's jump right in. I feel like yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for the uh, very holiday appropriate background. Oh, I'm glad you like it. I'm that glad totally you like makes it. up for not wearing green. So I will have to <laughs> virtually pinch you. Uh, well, you have no green on. I see blue. Hey, mutual pinching. Still pinching. Okay. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Oh my God. Uh, and but, I have a Christmas mug. Uh, you can't see it because that has, you know, I have a virtual background, but I have a Christmas mug that says crushing it. And it has a little, um, you know, uh, nutcracker on it. So, you know, I'm, oh, okay. I'm just doing well today. <laughs> I was about to say, if you have a mug that says crushing it, that really applies to any time of year, not just Christmas, hopefully. But it's a, you know, it's a little uh, nutcracker, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, well, uh, we're just going to jump right in because we ask uh, the same question first and last <clears throat> of all the comics on this show. Okay. Um, so we're. I would like to interrupt Tom. I'm sorry. Do it, do I it. interrupt Tom no, constantly. It. It's one of our trademarks on this show, and I always feel bad. I'm sorry, Tom. I would like to make it perfectly clear to you and any future guests it is okay to swear yeah. on this program. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Yes. People always ask us this. Apparently, Tom and I are clean people. Uh, but... Or like, I we at least give off that vibe. Because everybody who's been on this show, almost <laughs> everybody is like, am I allowed to curse? Am I allowed? Yeah. <laughs> you are. We're very dirty people. Every time I upload the podcast, I mark the little box that says, this is explicit. Um, so, yeah. All right. Curse away. Good um, to know. Good to know. I don't swear on stage, which is really funny. But if you were at my house like a fly on the wall, I'm like a truck driver. <laughs> and I re I read an article though that people who swear are actually are actually like the most honest people in the world. So that's interesting. Yeah, I've heard honest, and I've also heard probably from a different article more intelligent. 
Um, that's like one of the things. It's like if you curse, you're supposedly like more. I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. Honestly, I'm not like if you're gonna compliment me like that, I'm not going to investigate the research. <laughs> like I'm just gonna take it. I don't have a lot going for me right now, so I'm just going to take it. Um, <laughs> All right, back to the question that I interrupted with Sir Ridley. No, yeah, no, sorry, that, sorry. that's good to clarify. I should probably add back to the general like <laughs> intro of this show to also like warn audience members. There's probably going to be cursing. Um, but yeah, so we ask everybody first up um, is how would you describe your sense of humor to someone who has never seen you perform? Oh, I'm a total goofball. Mm -hmm. I'm really goofy. Um, I'm not like witty with the words. I don't do puns. Um, yeah, I'm just goofy. I'm one of those like silly types, you know. I I love laughing. I love um, my favorite thing in the world. Honestly, my one of my best friends. Her name is Heather Jones. She lives now across the country but uh, we used to work together. We would get to the point sometimes where we would be laughing so hard, we couldn't remember what started us laughing. Mm. And it would be like the tears streaming down your face kind of laughing. <laughs> and like you'd start to like say something and you couldn't, and then you just start laughing again. That's the kind of laughing that I absolutely love. Like your stomach would hurt and all that kind of stuff. And it's just goofy, silly kind of stuff. That's kind of what my humor is like. Like I'll just, tell silly stories. I tell a lot of jokes about when I was growing up and when I was a kid. And um, I try to relate to the audience with like um, having an older brother, mm -hmm. having a younger sister, growing up the middle kid from a small town. And everybody can relate to having like dumb things you did as a kid, that kind of stuff. And like looking back and being like, I did that, you know, and um, just dumb, I silly, silly kind of humor. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm not not intelligent humor. And my <laughs> my um, father's the opposite. He was very did lots of puns and you know, and I was always like, okay, you know. <laughs> Whereas I'm always like, let's talk about farting, you know. <laughs> so. Farting is pretty universally funny. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember those like those belly laughs, like tears down your face kind of moments. Um, our friend Charlie calls it silly o'clock. And one time we had a like Tom and I came up through an improv troupe together, and Tom, I think you were there, right? I, I mean, was about we, to like you took me a little bit down memory lane for a second. Do you mean Charlie Henry? Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, yeah, that's a throwback. Uh, yeah, but so we did this horrible show for a convention of bus drivers, like school bus drivers, that was and it was really bad, and we all went back in the green room, and Charlie was doing nothing but making fart noises with every part, literally every part of his body for the next three hours, and we were all just dying. Yeah, and so, I just think, like, you can find humor in so many things, and nothing is off limits you know what I mean like and I think silly humor is some of the funniest stuff Monty Python is hilarious to me the ministry of silly walks and like dumb voices and silly faces and I have friends that call me rubber face because I make silly crazy faces and and I think it's so fun though you know what I mean and I think you can make 
anybody laugh by doing dumb stuff. And that's how you get through life, you know? <laughs> that's, yeah, how, that's fun. I think that's really fun. So yeah. I'm glad yeah. you mentioned like the whole like getting through life thing. Cause I think that's like one of my first thoughts was the last time that I've had like one of those like laugh so hard, like tear jerk moments. Not the last time, but the majority of those moments for me probably happened last when I was, like, in college. Because it was still more of that, like, very, like, I don't know. That's just a period in your life where you don't necessarily have to worry about the real world yet. But you get, like, all the benefits of being an adult. And it's just, like, it gives you a lot of freedom and a lot of, like, uh, getting to meet new people, make new friends, have all that silliness. But yeah. I'm also glad that... um you mentioned your sense of humor, mostly because it was in the question, but also because I remember when you were on Too Funny Feedback, one of the main things that I was thinking when thinking about your sense of humor was that um, it does fall a little bit more in the, uh, like, it's definitely super hilarious. Everybody should check out Vicky. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And it, like, it feels really cool because uh, it's very much closer to the storytelling side of the spectrum. Yes, definitely. So, um, I'm kind of skipping around my prepped questions here, uh, which I shouldn't even have mentioned because I forgot to share them with anybody. Um, but, um, so like, seeing that I was correct and you identify as like a storyteller comic, what is your writing process like? Um, and uh, is it kind of like, is it a conscious choice to make sure that your comedy goes more towards the storytelling format or would you ever like consider doing like one liner after one liner if it got your point across because you also have um a, a good message generally i have found when when you kind of look at your comedy routine yeah um it's really funny so when i first started <clears throat> um god way when i was like way younger um, I first took a class and my training, I actually have my degree is in musical theater. And so my training is in theaters and I, I had done theater since I was five and my mom had put us in a musical program when we were five years old in the summer. It was called summer theater. I mean, how original is that? And um, <laughs> it was like the one thing I absolutely loved to do because we got to pretend. And we got to do shows and put on makeup and and wear costumes. And it was really, really fun. And I was always the kid at home who was like, stop being so loud. You can't, you know, use your inside voice. Stop running. Eat your cereal. Stop dancing around. And it used to just drive me crazy because I couldn't be myself. And my dad's a minister. And we were the kids that had to be perfect and had to be quiet and had to dress the right way and you know you know put fix your hair stop doing that you know stop fidgeting in your seat and that used to drive me nuts because I felt like I couldn't express myself so then when we could be in theater I could you know I could be like this you know crazy kid um I'm telling you like way more to get to the part of telling you know you're good so um so there were no, there was no like um, way to take a stand-up comedy route, you know, when I was a little kid. I just remember loving comedy because that brought everybody together. My family would laugh their heads off at the Carol Burnett show. 
and everybody thought that was so funny and saturday night live was a new thing and so everybody would laugh at that too and i was like what is this how how is everybody laughing at all this stuff and so i would imitate what i saw on tv so tim conway would be this like old man who could like barely walk across the floor and i would imitate him and so carol burnett here's this woman who was so funny and could make these faces and do these voices and every week she did something completely different and i was like i like this lady so she was my idol i absolutely loved her and she came from nothing and put herself through college and had didn't even have a um, closet. Her closet was her shower rod. And I had her book, and I read her book all the time. And I was like, I love this lady. So she was my idol. She was actually my senior thesis in college. Oh, um, wow. So when I graduated from college, I was like, I want to go to New York. I want to do. I want to do stand-up comedy. And I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how do you start a stand-up comedy, you know? So I became a nanny. And I was a nanny in Connecticut. <laughs> I was like, that's the next that, best that's thing. That's the road. <laughs> right? That's the road to stand-up comedy. Just yeah. a nanny. <laughs> I was a nanny in Connecticut because I could live there. And then they were close to the train. Oh. And I thought, I thought, okay, well, when I'm done being a nanny, then I can take the train into the city. Well, it didn't quite work out like that. I did some community theater in this town in Connecticut. Um, and so that was kind of fun, but then I would go into the city on the weekends, but I still wasn't sure, like, well, how do you do stand-up? Where do you go? What do you do? Um, so it wasn't until 2000, and I saw an ad in the backstage paper that said stand-up comedy classes, and I was like, what? You can take a class? So I signed up at the New York Comedy Club. And when I got there, I got lost on my way because I'm horrible with directions. This was before smartphones. Mm -hmm. I got totally lost. It was on East 24th Street. I went on West 24th Street. I ended up near a strip club. I was <laughs> like, this is not it. You know, I was like, I just get up by the pole and start doing a set. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I don't know where I'm and I finally got there and I got inside and literally the guy teaching was like and that's what we're gonna learn today and I was like oh shit I just missed it all you know and so what he wanted us to do was literally get up and stand at the microphone he was just gonna have us talk for two minutes just tell about our day who we were don't prepare anything don't try to be funny just give our name, where we were from, what our day was like. And that was it. And he wanted us to just record it. We all had to bring a little, I still have it, our little recorder that we were supposed to bring that was like a cassette recorder. And that was going to be what we were going to start to write jokes about. And I literally was like, I'm Vicky. I got lost. I ended up at a strip club. I, I have a terrible sense of direction. Blah, 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 blah. And some of my first jokes came from that. I literally wrote my first jokes about how I, I um, got, I get lost all the time. I ended up at a strip club, so I went in. I took my shirt off. I made about fifty bucks <laughs> for putting my shirt back on. You know, <laughs> it's one of my very first jokes that I wrote. So I learned about how you tell the truth and you just add a little twist to it. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't learn about my style of writing until years in. Like I, I, am, I learned about 
set up punchlines. You know, I learned about the, the technical writing, like how you write a joke. But I didn't learn my rhythm and cadence and what I like to talk about until five years in. And mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, so I was trying out stuff and I was trying to figure out who I was on stage and my voice and all that kind of stuff. A good five years in, I still was like, here's a joke, here's a random joke. This, you know, I wasn't putting myself in all the jokes. I wasn't, um, you know, my feelings about the jokes wasn't always in there. I was trying to put in what I thought the audience would like and what I thought the topics they would want to talk about would be important. You know, I was still trying to do that thing about like, oh, if I talk about sex, they're going to laugh. You know, all the things that comics do when they first start, you know, all the things like if I talk about partying, they're going to want to hear what I say, you know. And so I did all that kind of stuff. Well, how so, did that work for you? Because I, at least again, uh, from our improv background, the uh, making shallow sex jokes like sometimes does work like that will often get a reaction from the audience. Yeah, of course. I got laughs and I got a lot of, uh, you know. It was funny because um, I got a lot of response, a lot of response, and I, I got a lot of um, comedians and, and uh, bookers who were like, you're very talented. You're good at what you do. You have to talk about you. I need you to connect to you. I need to hear the real you. I got a lot of that when I first started. Um, so it wasn't until five, six years in that I started to really be like, I have to, I want to talk about more important things, but I wasn't ready either. I wasn't quite ready to delve into what I really wanted to talk about. I felt like it wasn't quite the time. You know what I mean? It was it, here in New York, it's very male heavy, you know, and now that the Me Too movement has happened, it's a lot better. It's a lot better. But at the time, that was 2006, 2007, it was different. Yeah. Very different. Plus, at the time, I was a lot heavier. I've lost a lot of weight since then. And I also didn't have a lot of confidence. I, I felt very, um, I didn't feel pretty. I didn't feel, uh, I don't know. I just didn't feel like I could talk about what I wanted to talk about. So I, I just felt like I had to talk about topics that were safe. You know what I mean? So I was like, I'm not going to talk about my, my body. I'm not, I'm going to talk about my body in ways that the audience will laugh. So I will talk about like, let me move this microphone out of the way so you can see me, you know, and get the cheap laugh because I knew they'd laugh about that kind of thing. So so it wasn't I, necessarily like, or you tell me, was it that like you felt that they wouldn't laugh for that reason because of like your weight? Or do you feel like it was that you were like, I guess, like, I guess the weight kind of like fed into the confidence sort of thing? It was a little of both. It was, I didn't have the confidence. I, mm -hmm. I felt like I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have the writing skill that I have now. And I didn't have um, like the personal confidence either. Like I had more confidence on stage than I did in my personal life. You know what I mean? And yeah. so <laughs> that helped. I had to have that. And then, you know, I've been through so much crap in the last 12, 13 years 
personally, you know, like I mentioned it in my bio, like I did have cancer. I did have, uh, I almost died a few times in 2013. I went through like this big medical thing where, so I got diagnosed with cancer. I had a DVT blood clot three weeks later, then, um, survived those two things had, you know, had, uh, went into the hospital and had surgery to remove my thyroid and get all that taken care of. Oh my God. Your body's kind of an asshole. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> or a trooper, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> Pretty crazy. And then three weeks later, I still had, you know, I still had the little sutures on and um, had to go back into the hospital with an infected gallbladder and they couldn't take it out. I was so sick. They couldn't take it out. So I was in the hospital for eight days. I'd have a little emergency procedure where they put a tube in and that acted as with a bag and I had to wear that for three months and that acted as my gallbladder and I had to like drain that. Oh, that was lovely. So then <laughs> well, back into the hospital to have my gallbladder removed, which was supposed to be like a one day thing. And my doctor was like, my sister was there and she was like, did she die? Like, cause no one came to come out to tell her what was happening. And I was in there for eight hours oh and he came out and was like, I've never seen someone this sick. I don't know how she was walking around. And apparently I have a really high pain threshold and was in pain for years, but I thought that's how everybody felt. I thought that's, that's adulthood. <laughs> yeah. I just thought that's how you felt. I didn't know. So I had to get that taken out and I was in the hospital another four days. And then at the end of that year, so it took me a good month and a half to recover from that. I got the shingles. So woman. No, I know. So that was just one year, you know, but and then there were all, uh, a bunch of other things that happened during that time. But just from that one year that helped me with my comedy. And I know that sounds really stupid, but that helped me so much in like being grateful mm-hmm. and being like so happy to still be here. <laughs> and like, it, it really helped me to go back because I had been wanting to go back, but I felt like I'm too old to go back. It's too late to go back. I had my chance and now I have a real job and blah, blah, blah. But I wasn't happy in that job and I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. And I kept finding little scraps of jokes I had started all around my apartment and everybody at my corporate job, I would have to leave these meetings. And it was a really cool job in the Broadway world. And it was education programs with Broadway performers and kids from around the world and stuff. So they would come in and I'd have to like lead these workshops and bring the Broadway performers in. So I had to introduce them and all that. And I was always joking and doing introductions and everything. And they were always like, why aren't you on stage doing this? And blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, I used to, I used to do that. And I, I, in my old life, I used to do that. And finally, my coworkers are like, when are you gonna go back? Can you just do like a new talent night or something? Like, just do that bit you did about, you know, last week when you were talking about this and that. And I finally was like, all right, I'm just, I'll just go back once. So I literally was going to go back. I won't dance. Don't ask me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I think, I think that's such a powerful thing too. Like, you know, I wish like, because like when we started, we started with free range improv and 
we uh in free range improv we had like people a variety of ages like we tom and i were used to performing with people in our 20s because we were both in our early 20s yeah, like started. our first improv troupe was like through the community college so it was all really yeah. young people but free range had like we had a member who i'm guessing was in her 60s a member in her 50s if like, she wasn't was then she is now yeah exactly she's a the improv troupe was like it lasted for like seven to eight years so that's fair to say for anybody yeah uh, and like if you were worried they were on the border like by the end of it they were definitely whatever age in you thought six, they were yeah. in the beginning <laughs> uh but but yeah like i mean and for me as a like 20 something person fresh out of college i was like wait so you don't have to give up your dreams when you grow up like yeah. there's a, there's a way to have money but also have like a fulfilling creative life. Like, I feel mm -hmm. like that's something there should be when you get your college diploma or your high school diploma or you leave high school, <laughs> whatever. Mm -hmm. I feel like there needs to be somebody in like an alley that's just like, hey, by the way, <laughs> there's a way to make things work for you. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I digress. So, so okay. So your coworkers got you back into performing, basically, because you, okay. Just kept, they kept at me. They were like, just go, just go. And so when I when I did the show, I called a friend who still performed all the time, and she had she had kept reaching out to me. She's like, can you just do this like comedy night? It's a charity. Just come back and do it. It'll be fun, you know. And I turned her down I was like no I'm not gonna do that I'm out of practice it's been you know 10 years I'm not gonna do that blah blah, blah. Mm -hmm. and finally I was like all right let me just sure let me just do one night and all my co-workers came to the show and I can't even describe the feeling of like once once I had that mic in my hand again I was just like what have I not been doing this why why you know and it was like yeah the most incredible feeling and to like, I was scared shitless. I was scared. I'm not going to lie. But the second that mic was in my hand and, you know, I could feel like the pulse pounding in my ears and they said my name and I was like, Ugh. you know, but once that mic was in my hand and the first joke was out of my mouth and I heard the laughter I can't even describe the rush that was in me. And I was just like, oh, oh my God, I've missed this so much. And it was just awesome. I still have that video. It's on my YouTube. And it wasn't the best performance. It wasn't like, it, it's not great at all, actually. But for me, it was like the coolest feeling just to like be back on that stage and just to know all of the crap that I'd been through to get there was really awesome and when I got to the office the next day all of my co-workers were like you have to keep doing that we didn't know that you could do that we know that you could make us laugh but we didn't know you could do that and so that was really a really cool feeling yeah so, and it's I, I really good to have like the support of your community to like do something very vulnerable like stand up uh i'm trying to imagine as a librarian like having people come see my stand-up it's a very uh specific type of culture i don't know if that would fly so much 
Well, but, it was a, you know, this was definitely, this is Broadway, so that was different. Yeah. Everybody that worked there used to be a performer or was still a performer um, trying to be a performer. Yeah, so it's a different culture for sure. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't librarians, that's for sure. <laughs> Just like so. going back to what you said about like your year of brutal illness and <sighs> your body being the biggest bitch to me right there you go there you go yeah <laughs> um but like yeah so i i've talked about it a couple times i think but when i worked at um like in my past life i worked as a advocate for survivors of domestic violence here in baltimore which is a heavy fucking job yeah but the one thing that like got us through it it was like making horrible jokes like yes I would go home and like try to tell my friends or my partner or my family a joke from work that I thought was hilarious and they would just stare at me like I bet and I was like no I don't understand also (laughs) like I have to like joke about it because that's my way of like coping with it so that I can like better serve these people the next day totally totally did you find that with um your comedy when you were going through all these struggles that it was uh i don't know were you like writing jokes throughout because i know a lot of people use their comedy as a way to kind of process whatever they're dealing with in their life well i didn't physically write down any jokes while i was going through this but i did find myself <laughs> I this would be like, a good bit. <laughs> no, but I, okay. I did find myself like comforting the doctors, um, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Like, um, <laughs> and I would tell my, I had two friends who were with me the whole time. So my good friend Steve, who I went to college with, um, and then my good friend Heather. She and Steve were the ones who were always at the hospital going to the doctor's appointments. So they knew all my doctors. I had a team of doctors because they, once I got diagnosed with the DVT, which ended up being a blood clotting disorder called factor five laden, which I didn't know I had. And so now I wear this cute little bracelet that says, you know, factor five laden. I'm on Eloquist for the rest of my life so that the doctors, if I'm ever in like a car accident or something, they'll know, you know, oh, she's on a blood thinner and they'll know something is wrong. But they went to all my doctor's appointments so they would know. And because it was so much information coming at me, I can't remember all that stuff. So they they would record on their phone or write things down and they would know what was happening. Um, but they they would comment. They're like, why are you comforting the doctors or making jokes? And, and I'm like, I don't know. I guess that's how I'm dealing with it. So like the day of surgery, I had um, my regular cancer doctor. I had the, I can't remember what they're called, the vein doctor, um, Dr. Jean. Well, yeah. I, I, no, never mind. I don't know what I'm talking There's about. So many. <laughs> Um, and then there were all these nurses and all these, uh, it was a teaching hospital. And then there were all of these like other, I, I, I want to say there were like 15 or 20 people in the operating room and they let you walk from, you know, the area where you have your family, you have to have, you know, your medical gown and they answer all your questions or anything. And you walk down the hallway into the operating room. It's the brightest room you've ever been in more than any spotlights you've ever had. It is the brightest room. Mm-hmm. 
And I walked in and there's literally like 20 people in there. And I was like, all right, let's get this party started, you guys. Let's go. And they all just started laughing. And I was like, all right, let's, where do you want me? What do you want? And so they, they laughed at me. So we all just cracked up. And then when I was in the hospital, you know, three weeks later with the infected gallbladder, there was one night that I, this literally, I found out later that I almost died. Didn't know at the time that that was what was going on. I just knew that I did not feel well. And I was having these horrible, horrible nightmares. And on my IV were like 20 bags. And I have a picture of it. Cause I, I remember being like, so drugged out. I was like, what is all this stuff? And it was like all these IVs of drugs. And, um, there was this really nice nurse. He was this Jamaican nurse and he kept coming in and putting um, a washcloth on my head. And he would, he was holding my hand at one point and he said, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. I do remember that. Um, so I guess during that night I lost consciousness and was in and out of consciousness. All I know is I was having these horrible nightmares and I'll tell you a little bit about it. I do remember that it, I was in this weird um, amusement park and you had to go on these slides and the way that you got tickets, which was like money was people had to throw up on you. And it was the grossest. Been there. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> and that's, that's how you got these tickets, which were money, but it was like the gross stream. But anyway, oh, wow. the next, the next day it was super early in the morning and I was just laying in my bed and I could hear the doctor out in the hallway and he was talking to all the the um, younger, uh, I guess, uh, they're not officially doctors yet. They're the students. Like the ones in residency or whatever. The interns yeah. or residents or whatever the fuck they're called, yeah. Yeah, so he was talking to them about patients. And so he was like, so she really took a turn for the worse last night. We have to try to figure out what we're going to do because we don't know how to help her. We can't operate. We're not quite sure, but it was really bad. Um, so we'll check in on her. We'll see how things are going. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, that poor woman. I hope she's okay. This is just awful. That's so bad. Not I realizing they're talking about you. And then they walked into my room and I was like, oh shit, they were talking about me. <laughs> and for now, I think it is hilarious. I laugh so hard when I tell that to people and they look at me and they're like, oh my God, that's you all that. <laughs> yeah. I'm laughing right now because that's like normally my reaction also to funny stuff, but more often than not also like, oh my God, that's making me a little uncomfortable. Like, I'm so glad that you're on the other side of that. But it's funny too. You no, know? it's definitely it's funny, funny too. I can yeah. tell this story and be like, it's me they were talking about. <laughs> Um, but, and then they all came in and I could see their faces cause they're all learning to like, not show the emotion they have to like, but I could see some of them. So of course I'm now trying to make them feel better that here they are looking at the lady that almost died. And I'm like, Hey guys, what's up? How you doing? And so they're all looking at me and I was like, how's your day? How are you? And they did not know what to do. And I was just like, <laughs> So I'm the doctor's like, hey. feeling, you know, and I was like, I don't feel great. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is fantastic. Oh my God. That day was like the worst day. That was when they did the, the weird needle in my stomach thing. And I had to have a blood transfusion. I had two blood transfusions that day. 
because my blood was too thin. Mm -hmm. So that was like the scariest day, but I was so drugged out, but I do remember trying to make them feel better. <laughs> so how long did it take for you to go from that kind of period of your life to being in a place where you can kind of like talk about it in a funny way, in a comfortable way, in a performance setting? Because obviously it's like a completely oh, different God. thing. Oh God. I want to say at least like five years. Cause I mean, that year I couldn't talk about it in a funny way. I like, I would cry. Like I cried, I had to get through the emotions. You know, I had to feel all that. I had to go to therapy for a little while to work out the emotions. Cause there was so, like I said, there was so much that came at me and I had to work out all that stuff. Cause it's a lot of heavy stuff. You're like, I almost died. What? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like anybody would have their coping mechanisms put to the test at that point. Yeah. And then you have to go through like, why did, how, what, you know, you have to work out all that stuff. And then you, there's a lot of, um, um, gosh, what would the words be? Like I had to figure out like, why am I going to work every day? That's not important. You know what I mean? I was like, family's important. Experiences yeah. are important. Yes, I have to pay my bills, but there's so much more important than this, you know? Like a layer of existentialism, existentialism. Yeah. There we go. That's the word. Yeah. My friends started calling me Matthew McConaughey because I kept <laughs> saying to them, uh, the world's going to keep turning, you know? <laughs> all right, all right. They were like, all right, all right, all right. They were like, you, you know, because I had such a change because I used to be a workaholic and they were like, uh, what happened? I was like, well, you know, the world keeps turning, you guys. Let's just leave at six o'clock. Time to leave. They're like, I'll just do one more thing. I'm like, work will still be here tomorrow. And they were like, okay, McConaughey, you know. So, yeah, I just had to work through a lot of crap. And then once I got through all of that, um, I, I give a lot to charity now. I do, a, I did before, but now it's more. Now I really am like, you know, there's a lot more important things than money. There's a lot more important things than, you know, working 40 billion hours a week. Yeah, I work hard in that 40 hours a week, but then I'm not, that's it. Yeah. I'm not gonna that's the like kind of attitude I have, try to have too, know? is like, if I'm off the clock, I am off the clock. Too. Yeah. Try yeah. and like we gotta we gotta really create those boundaries i feel just to make it all worth it really even if you love your job and even if you're doing important work it's so uh so much more important to maybe not more important but like to have that separation for yourself so that it's you can true. then go back and make sure you're giving your best self to the job but um well somebody i was filling out it uh you know i got laid off last year and i was filling out an application I guess that was on Monday and halfway through the application, it was like, this job is more than 40 hours a week. It's 55 plus. Are you willing to? And I was like, delete. No. I'm, not <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. No, I'm not. I was like, absolutely not. I don't give a shit. This is selling, you know, appliance. No, I'm not. I, this is not important. If this was my business and it was something that I really believed in, yeah, maybe I'd probably put some more time into it, but no, I'm not, I don't give a crap about your company and putting in 55 hours. Sorry. Yeah, you know? no. And yeah. I don't care what that company thinks, you know? So yeah. I just didn't even finish filling it out. I was like, no, sorry. Um, awesome. So I'm kind of curious, 
Tom, if I can ask a question that was not pre-prepared. Hell yeah. Again, I didn't share my list of questions with fucking anybody. So, like, we're, <laughs> we're going, like, we're free-balling it. Uh, it's St. Patrick's Day. I guess that's our excuse. I don't know. Yeah, I don't anyway, know. <laughs> um, I'm curious, like, as somebody with a theater background, how do you think that influences your stand-up? Because... I know, like, I know a handful of people who do comedy that started out in theater, and I feel like that kind of has a very specific, like, je ne sais quoi. When very it, when specific it's personality type, yeah. Yeah, when it's translated into comedy. Do you think, like, do you feel like that's kind of informed your comedy at all? Well, you know, it's funny because I, I hear a lot of, of um, uh, traditional stand-up comics, they think it's like a bad thing. You know, they're like, those don't really stand-up comedy. And I think it's stupid, honestly. I'm like, really? That I already know how to use a microphone? That I, <laughs> you know, that I already know where to find the light? That I already know, you know, how to project my voice? That I already know how to do a character? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like, I, I personally think it's fine. Um, I was never one of those theatery kind of people anyway. I'm very natural on stage. I'm sure Tom will already tell you I did one of the mics and that was one of his comments right away. It's like, you're very natural with how you talk. How mm -hmm. you, I've never been one of those like, I'm on stage and I'm playing a character. And, you know, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? And I always yeah, call that... Yeah, I always call that theatery. When somebody's on stage and you can see the character in their head, that they're like, okay, on the word the, I'm going to turn. I am like, performing now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's the perfect way to explain it. Like, they see the character in their head. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I, like, when you say that, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's one of my pet peeves. It drives me crazy. And there are even famous people that are like that. Like, that, uh, especially on Broadway, when you see somebody famous, that they put them on Broadway, and they're not a stage actor, and you see them doing the work. You see it happening. And I'm just like, oh, you need another two weeks in the rehearsal room so that that can go away. You know what I mean? Because yeah. we shouldn't be they seeing They never give that. them a long enough rehearsal process. Yeah, <laughs> we shouldn't be seeing that process. That needs to be coming, that needs to be happening where we don't see that anymore. You know what I mean? Um, and and so I think the, the thing with people that have not had theater training that are stand-up comics, there's nothing wrong with that. And people that have theater training that are stand-up comics, there's nothing wrong with that either. You just have to put it into one thing. You know what I mean? And I've never understood the divide. I've never understood it when people are like, that's not true stand-up comedy. Really? Yeah. Just because I already have the training on how to walk onto a stage and how to take the mic out of the mic stand and move it out of the way. Okay. Whereas, you know, Joe Schmo, who has never stood on a stage before, but calls himself a stand-up comic and stands there with the mic stand in front of him the whole time, blocking his face. Okay. You know, I, I, I don't get it. I personally don't get it. Not so. to get too analytical, but I kind of wonder, like, especially as someone who, like, went, I, I am not a theater person, but I went to a very theater-oriented school uh, for college, and 
I feel like there's this interpretation of theatricality as being like a feminine trait or a queer trait. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm using the air quotes so you can tell that I'm very if serious. If you're listening to the podcast, she's using yeah. air quotes. <laughs> I'm using air quotes. <laughs> um, and I kind of wonder, because like you like touched on it before, like comedy is still in many ways it's better but in many ways it's still kind of a boys club like you know when i've had in the past a friend has always said to me look if these average ass white dudes can get on stage and just talk about smoking a bong all day yeah dick yeah you know (laughs) and and so i kind of wonder if like some of the stigma against like being theatrically trained is a little bit of that like Oh, oh, that's really weird. Oh, that's kind of queer, whatever, you know? Like, there's also like this, I feel like, um, this sentiment that like everybody has to be like hard and edgy, which like in itself have kind of been like indoctrinated as masculine traits. But also, no one is more fucked up than theater people. Yeah, like, that's real. also like what people need to realize is we hard as fuck. <laughs> Let's be real. As as a friend of theater people, y'all some fucked up people. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, I it's true. People, <laughs> it's true. I've been in uh, you know theater since I was a tiny kid, five years old. You know. And then when I got into college and all that kind of stuff, drugs, alcohol, all that crap ran rampant, you know, and people are messed up. A lot of people that should have been in therapy were not in therapy, you know, and because we have theater instead. That's our thing. (laughs) But the same thing with comedy. It's the same Mm -hmm. thing. People and I said this to somebody the other day. People confuse stand up comedy with therapy and Mm -hmm. and they think like, I'm just going to work out all my problems by writing about it through comedy and and do my my therapy on stage and it's not the same thing. You really need to go to a therapist and work out your demons with a therapist and then write your comedy and do that on stage. And you're going to be much more successful in your personal life and your stand-up comedy if you work out your demons and with a therapist, a trained therapist and do that <laughs> than if you self-medicate and you know, get drunk and tell high jokes and about it. Stuff and tell jokes about it yeah. because then your audience is a hostage, and you're doing that, and you're hurting yourself as opposed to getting help. And you know them I mean? a lot. Uh, you know, and I agree with you in the in the respect that it's it's still a boys' club. It is still a fight. It is still like you know, women aren't funny. I hear that all the fucking time women aren't funny really who says who says just because you have a penis you are saying that women aren't funny okay Okay. well christopher hitchens said it and he's dead now so look how well that worked out for him (laughs) those are both facts Um... (laughs) those are both facts oh god unfunny men and unfunny women and unfunny non-binary yeah. everybody can be everybody. not hilarious yeah exactly. can, and i've heard funny everyone so it really depends so yeah. it's all genders and non-genders are funny and not funny it, it depends on your point of view and you know comedy is subjective they all need to remember that yeah. too 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'll also say that, like, as far as the parallels between stand-up and theater, those both read much more, uh, like, cult settings than therapy settings to me. (laughs) For real. Yeah. For real. But I do remember as a kid loving stand-up comedy. Loving. Like, Steve Martin was my favorite. I loved him. I thought he was so funny and creative and just silly. I think that's why my humor is so silly because he used to have like the arrow through his head and he played a banjo and he had balloons and the rubber chicken and like he just did silly voices and was crazy. Yet then he could go on Saturday Night Live and play all these different crazy characters, you know, like the crazy brothers and he would do all these voices and the King Tut song and like all this stuff i would sneak down the stairs i was six seven years old sneak down the stairs and peek into the tv room and watch what i could watch and you know i wasn't supposed to but i thought that was so funny you know i was reflecting on it a couple days ago but i was like one of my main like comedic influences growing up i realized was uh jim carrey which ended up being like so like right on the nose with like how I ended up developing as a performer because like yeah I like did the improv stuff but like uh like for the past five or six years now I've been working with a physical theater company and he's like a very physical like comedic actor and I was just like it was like a light bulb going off like oh my god this is probably why this is why like (laughs) these two main things are together is because I was like watching the mask on repeat when I was like seven years old. Um, Yeah, I think it's so important to remember like what our influences are, especially like as a child. Because I also think like children have such a great perspective when it comes to comedy because comedy is so much about like truth and yeah. children just, like, have this amazing ability where it's, like, they just call it how it is. And they're so great at identifying if something is being authentic or not. Right. Right. And they'll they'll tell you right away if something is not funny mm-hmm. or if they're not telling the truth or if, you know, they know, they know right away. They can smell it. They'll be yeah. like, no, I don't believe you. I have one friend whose uh, daughter is very forthright and uh, will tell me unabashedly how not funny I am. It's great. I love it. <laughs> uh, which it. is fine. That you know, everyone love. needs a critic. It's like I'm getting my own uh, my own feedback, Mike. Um, just uh, <laughs> where I'm is, crying Is that a Lulu lot. that you're talking about, Tom? Uh, I wasn't going to name her because she's a minor and didn't ask oh. to be involved with this show. Um, I'm just kidding. I once looked at her and I was like, <laughs> oh my God, you're getting so big and she's like yeah i'm five now (laughs) (laughs) which is like yeah it's a big deal when you're five it's like it's not like i'm four anymore i've seen some stuff Um, (laughs) but because we are uh winding down a little bit on time this by no means has to be the last question but i want to make sure we do get it in before the end but i want to uh ask what we ask all of our comics this is also like a good chance if you have anything that you'd like to plug, but we want to know what's up next for you, what's coming up immediately so we can check you out and keep up with you. I'll plug your Instagram handle again uh, at the outro of the show, but also if there's anything as far as like long-term goals, kind of like 
what your perspective is as far as like we've had some people on the show where it's like I love comedy it's a great hobby and like other people who are like I'm gonna be a comedian I'm gonna write for SNL or like that kind of stuff so okay well immediately I have two shows tonight so I have um yeah I have a show at 10 o'clock that is um Mary Kennedy's um St. Patrick's Day show that is with um, Broadway Comedy Club slash Comedy Therapy, which is on Zoom. And that's at 10 o'clock. And then at midnight, I have um, Dan Mills show, which is um, working out um, comedy with professional comedians. And so I have a guest spot. And so it's like really awesome comedians that have been on David Letterman and Conan and Stephen Colbert. And so I have to, let me look and see who the guests, the, I've been promoting all these shows and I have to look and see like, so I don't mess up who's on what show. I gotta keep my calendar straight. Um, That's good. I routinely, I routinely forget who's on this show. And okay, so. Um, <laughs> I have a two thirds chance of getting it right. <laughs> Carmen Lagala is one of the guests and Danny Joles and Luke Severed. And so then I'm one of the guest spots and then um, Dwayne White is one of the guest spots. And so that one's at midnight. Mm-hmm. And then I have like some other shows coming up that are like that. But ultimately what I want to do, um, <clears throat> I, wanna, I want my own Netflix special. I want that. And then I want to be like that crazy next door neighbor lady that you see in movies. <laughs> yeah. You're like, who's that wacky funny lady? that you don't necessarily know her name, but she's in like all the movies. You're like that crazy funny lady. That's who I want to be. So. Sort of like a Joan Cusack. Yeah, like a Joan Cusack, but more like, um, I'm gonna have to look up her name. Better. Um, Like older movies from like the 1940s and 50s. from you can't take it with you she's an older woman i'm gonna have to look up her name but she was in all these older movies um but that kind of lady that you're just kind of like steals the show yeah yeah not the star but you're like that's who you remember from the movie that crazy quirky that's who i want to be i don't know why but the (laughs) uh image that's coming to my head what was um the next door neighbor on bewitched Yes. Okay, great. Awesome. Mrs. Kravitz. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you remembered the name because that was going to bother Kravitz. me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's That'd be funny. great. I'd cast you as that if uh, <laughs> I uh, am producing a TV show. Um, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. That's going to take at least another month. Um, <laughs> at least another month. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, anything else you want to share with us before we closed out for the evening? No, I'm just so happy that you asked me to be on this. This is a lot of fun. It was so fun having you. I feel yeah. like we've only hit the tip of the iceberg, but it's also <laughs> only an hour show. So unfortunately, I feel like uh, if we try and dig into any of the other stuff, it'll like I would have to put an extra half hour on it just because I want to <laughs> make sure that we like unpack it completely well i'm such a like blah blah, blah. i can talk for hours no. and hours and hours so no, that's a good quality <laughs> but uh we'll just uh we'll just have to look at at some point maybe uh, next season uh because i've had other people too who have like requested to come to be interviewed again 
Yeah. Um, oh, really? So, I don't know. I think maybe at some point it would be fun to have, like, a, I don't know, some sort of All-Stars episode. Anyway, that's just me talking off the top of my head. That's <laughs> nothing that's officially in the works, but I do want to give us a quick little outro. Allow me to pin myself. Um, but, yeah. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you, Vicky, for being such a great guest and hanging out with us. Uh, you can follow her on Instagram at Vicky Plummer Comedian. Uh, that's correct for your Instagram handle, right? That's correct. And my name is V I C K I E. Yes, I E, not with a Y. Vicky Crazy Ways. Yeah. Um, and that's Plummer, P L U M M E R. There's no B. She is not working on anybody's pipes. Um, but thank you, Ross, for being a great co-host, as always, and a big thanks to you, our audience, who's probably out there. Um, we are, uh, really grateful if you're watching the program, and, uh, also want to remind you that this Friday we're going to be doing a special show, Stand Up For A Cause, in benefit of the AIDS Committee of Toronto, uh, also known as ACT, so be sure to check that out this Friday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Um, it's going to be airing at bit.ly slash ACT. Don't worry, all the links to everything is in the description of this episode. Um, and, uh, yeah, tune in next week. Uh, we're going to be interviewing comedian Mike.